Revelation chapter 10, verse 5. And the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth lifted up his hand to heaven and swear by him that liveth forever and ever who created heaven and the things that are therein and the earth and the things that are there, that therein are and the sea and the things which are therein that there should be time no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel when he shall begin to sound the mystery of God should be finished as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. And the voice which I heard from heaven spake un, unto me again and said, Go and take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel which standeth upon the sea and upon the earth. And I went unto the angel and said unto him, Give me the little book. And he said unto me, Take it and eat it up. And it shall make thy belly bitter, but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up. And it was in my mouth sweet as honey, and as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. And he said unto me, Thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for this opportunity to look into your word. And we ask this morning that you would open our understanding and our hearts to receive your word. I pray that your spirit would teach us this morning what it would have us to learn. I pray that you would use me, Lord, in this place, and that your name might be glorified through the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We are in a, a, a junction between the sixth trumpet and the seventh. And so far, we have seen or gone through, been through the, the seven seals being opened. We've spoken about or looked at the 144,000 that God had chosen from the earth. And we have looked up to the sixth trumpet sound. And we saw in the trumpets, the first three, God's judgment upon the earth. And then we saw in the, the, the later ones, the, the release of demons. We saw Satan being cast down. We saw nations being prepared for war. We saw men being tormented. Not a pretty picture. Last week, we had a look at the situation where John sees this, this mighty angel coming down from heaven and, and this angel stands upon the land and the sea and he has a book in his hand and this angel has been sent to deliver a message to John and John receives that message so he may write those things down for future generations. Let's begin, let's continue with our, our look at this, uh, this book this morning. Verse 5 and 6. And, and the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth lifted up his hand to heaven and swear by him that liveth forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are therein, and the earth and the things that are therein are, and the sea and the things which are therein, that there should be time no longer. Who's ever been in a courtroom and had to give testimony? Anyone had done that? Did you raise your hand? 
Do they ask you to raise your hand? Because as far as I remember, you have to put one hand on the Bible and one hand in the air. Does that, does that still happen these days? It does. Okay, what is it? What are you doing when you do that? What, what does it mean? It means you're... you're it, it means you're going to tell the truth, correct? Okay, very plainly, but why? Why, why do people put their hands on Bibles and, and things like that? Well, you're, you're basically calling the Bible to be the witness against you if you don't tell the truth. Oaths aren't that common in our society, are they? Swearing isn't that common. Swearing in other ways common, but swearing as an oath is not that common in our daily lives. Probably the closest thing we'd have is, is, to, is to have a written an affidavit or a, uh, or a uh, what do they call it when you go to the, the JP? Stat deck. A stat deck. A stat deck is a similar sort of thing. What you're saying is, what I declare on this piece of paper has been witnessed by someone else and I declare it to be the truth. And that person who, who then signs your name at the bottom says, I heard him and I'm, I'm a witness to that. So what's this angel doing? This angel comes down from heaven and raises up his hand to heaven and, and, and swears by God. Well, if you, look at, if you look at history, the Israelites did that often. It was common to swear by everything. They would swear all types of different oaths to each other. It was very important in their culture to do that. We have documents and, and, uh, and, uh, and, and contracts that we sign at the bottom, which are proof normally. But we don't have that ability to be able to do that. An oath to each other is very important. In Israel, oath-taking is very important. And in the Bible, oath-taking, swearing, is mentioned about 150 times. That's, it's actually quite common. It was a very common thing to do in the, uh, in the Old Testament, especially. In a biblical sense, an oath is between two or more people. Okay, It's between two or more people. And it calls upon the name of God as a witness and a guarantor. You've heard people say stuff like, Oh, if, if I'm not telling you the truth, then may God strike me or do something nasty to me. What they're doing is saying, I'm telling the truth and I'm, saying conf I'm so confident I'm telling you the truth is that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put myself at God's mercy if I'm not. And I'm gonna, then I'm going to let him deal with me. Unlike a vow, people used to take vows in the Bible as well. A vow is between you and God where you make a promise directly to God to do something. Okay? An oath, on the other hand, is between men and God is the witness. And in the New Testament, we find a lot of different types of oaths where they wouldn't just swear by um, the, um, uh, uh, God. They would swear by the temple, by the altar, by the sacrifice, by all different types of things. I swear by such and such, my house. May my house burn down if, uh, you know, if I'm not telling you the truth and all different types of things like that. But the, you know, the more serious the oath, 
the higher the, the, the consequence had to be. So, unlike a vow, an oath is a contract between a man and another man or, or men under God's watchfulness, with God as a witness. But in Matthew, Jesus condemns the Pharisee, doesn't he? He tells them off, the Pharisees, because they, had, they, they were abusing that whole, that whole thing. They were, or they had figured out a way to make an oath not morally binding even. They had worked out a loophole around it where they could swear by something but not follow it through. They would find different types of things or ways to get around it and Jesus condemns them. And Jesus even says, don't swear at all. Turn to Matthew chapter 5, verse 33 as we look at what his advice is to people. Matthew 5.33 says again, You have heard that it has been said by them of old time that thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. But I say unto you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, neither by the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, neither shalt thou swear by thy head, because thou can, canst not make one hair white or black. But let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay. For, who, for whatsoever is more than these cometh the evil. So Jesus says, if you're going to say you're going to do something, just say you're going to do it. Or say yes and or no. Don't start swearing by anything else. And you know what, the, what the, really the, the crunch line is here? where he says, see in verse 36, neither shalt thou swear by thy head. Don't even swear by your own, by, your, by yourself, by your own head. Because he goes, you don't have the power to make one hair white, black, or black, white. Which means what? You have very little power to guarantee anything. Do we? If I say to you, in a year's time, I'm going to come and, and do this particular thing for you, and I swear it, that I'll do it. Now, I can swear by anything. I could swear by myself, my, my home, my possessions, the temple, the church, whatever it may be. Can I guarantee you that I'm going to carry that promise, promise through? I can't, because I don't know if I'm going to be here tomorrow. So what's the point of swearing? And Jesus says, if you're going to be swearing like that, don't even bother. Because you need to realise, first and foremost, you have very little power. There is nothing that you can do that, that can secure a promise that you make. Even a promise within 10 minutes. Who knows what's going to happen between now and the time you do that thing. You could fall over and break a leg. And you can't fulfil that promise. So Jesus says, don't. Don't swear by anything else. If you're going to say you're going to do something, say, I'll do it. And leave it at that. He warns us about making promises using anything as a security, even ourselves. Because we have no control, right? We have no control or ownership over other things. And we have limited control 
and no ownership even over ourselves. James says exactly the same thing. You don't have to turn there. James says, But above all things, my brethren, swear not, neither by heaven, neither by the earth, neither by any other oath, but let your yea be yea and your nay be yea, lest you fall into condemnation. Who knows if we're going to be here tomorrow? Who knows whether something's going to befall us between the time we make the oath and the time we get to carry it out. So why is this angel swearing? Why is this angel putting up his hand and, 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 and swearing? <coughs> to understand this a little bit better, I want, I want to look at another passage. And it's the only other instance in the Bible where someone, we see someone putting up their hand and swearing by the God of heaven. There's only one other time in the Bible that this happens. And you'll find it interesting. Turn to Daniel chapter 12, verse 7. Now, before we read that, read that verse, keep in mind what, what uh, John was talking about here. John had seen an angel. He'd come down from heaven to deliver a message and this angel was swearing that this thing would come to pass, that this thing would be true. Okay, And he was swearing by the God of heaven. Now, look at Daniel 12.7. And I heard the man clothed in linen, which was upon the waters of the river, when he held up his right hand and his left hand unto heaven and swear by him that liveth for ever and ever that it shall be for a time and times and half and when he shall have accomplished the scatter the power of the holy people all these things shall be finished Daniel who was speaking to Daniel it was an angel and this angel was delivering a message in the very same way that this other angel was delivering it to John and he, the difference though is that the angel that was delivering the message to Daniel raised how many hands? Two. And John's angel only raised one. Now why did John's angel only raise one and this angel raised two? Well, he had a book in his other hand, didn't he, silly? <laughs> he couldn't raise both. Now, the, the, think of it. The only other time in the Bible where there's a a person or an angel raising hands only happens in Daniel and John. And look at what the message is. Look at what sort of message they're delivering. It's a message about the future. It's a message directly from God about what's going to happen in the future. So why was the angel swearing? Well, what was the angel doing? The angel was delivering a message directly from God about what would happen in the future, correct? Both of them were. So why swear? Well, who were they delivering a message for? God. Who had to guarantee the message? Who would make sure that the, that, that message would come to pass? 
that what was delivered in that message would come from. Was it the angel or was it God? Uh, it was God. He was, the angel was delivering a message for God, not for himself. He was simply declaring, both of these angels were, declaring that they were faithfully delivering a message from God as it had been given to them and that the God who sent this message would guarantee that it would be fulfilled. He could confidently swear that because they weren't the guarantor, God was the guarantor and it was God who was saying what was going to happen. This brings up an interesting, another interesting point. Who does God swear by? If people always swear, if people swear, give me the answers all the time, you guys. If people, <laughs> if people swear by things that are a higher authority than, than, than them, right, as a witness against them, if they're not telling the truth or they're not, not carrying out their oath, who does God, what higher authority does God swear by? And they gave us the answer already. He can only swear by himself. Because he is the highest authority. There's no other authority higher than God. Turn to Hebrews chapter 6 verse 13. Just as a, a quick... Uh... Quick point here. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 13. Look at this. Now God made a promise to Abraham, did he not? Do you remember that? God made a promise to Abraham and Hebrews 6.13 says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could, not, he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself. Which means he guaranteed that what he said was going to come to pass. And you know something? That's the confidence that we have. Because if there's anyone that can guarantee what's going to happen in the future, if there's anyone... <coughs> That's going to guarantee the truthfulness of the message and the ability to see it through. It's only God that can do that. And the interesting thing is that when these angels swear, or especially the one in Revelation, he swears by, one, him that liveth forever and ever in Revelation, which means there is no time limit to God. God's not going to die. God, whatever promise God makes... He will always see it through because he doesn't expire like people do. And then the angel goes on to say that by him that created heaven and all the things in it, by him that created the earth and all things in it and the sea and all things in them, there is no greater power than the power that created the universe and everything in it. So God not not, is not only limited, is not limited by time, in a lifespan as, as, as we are, but God is not limited by power either. There is nothing greater than his power. And you know something? The fact that he says, the angel says, that, that he swears by the God who created everything in heaven, in earth, and under the earth, and in the sea, and everything in them, means that God owns everything anyway. He owns it all. And the fact that he is the owner means that there is no one who can say, ah, oh, you can't do that. There is no greater authority, which means if God says it's going to be done, it's going to be done. And there is no one who can stop him from doing it. The other interesting 
parallel between these two passages, between Daniel and John, is look at the main point of the passage. Go to, if you're in Daniel chapter 12, verse 6, if you're there, I'm hoping, I think you still might be there, but Daniel chapter 12, verse 6 to 13. Let's, uh, I want to read that and I want you to think about what is the most common word in that passage. Okay? The most common theme or word in that particular passage. Now, once again, this angel is giving a, a, a prophecy to, the, to Daniel. Daniel chapter 12, verse 6. And one, said, <coughs> and one said to the man clothed in linen, which is upon the waters of the river, how long shall it be to the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen, which was upon the waters of the river, when he held up his right hand and his left hand unto heaven, and swear by him that liveth forever and ever, that it shall be for a time and times and a half. And when he shall have accomplished the scatter the power of the holy people, all these things shall be finished. And I heard, but I understood not. Then said I, O oh my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And he said, Go thy way, Daniel. For the words are closed up and sealed to the time of the end. Many shall be purified and made white and tried, but the wicked shall do wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. And from the time that the daily sacrifice shall be taken away, and the abomination that maketh desolate set up, there shall be a thousand two hundred and ninety days. Blessed is he that waiteth, and cometh to the thousand three hundred and, and, and five and thirty days. But go thou... Go thou thy way till the end be for thou shalt rest and stand in thy lot at the end of the days mm. any, notice anything uh, common through that time and the end of time when th all things shall be finished till the time of the end go thy way to the end and the end of days Daniel saying what shall be the end of all these wonders all these Incredible things that the angel was telling him. And that's the same message that the angel in Revelation is giving to John. Go back to Revelation chapter 10, verse 6. And we're going to find this common link between those two. Revelation 10, 6 says, And swear by him that liveth forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are therein are, and the earth and the things that therein are, and the sea and the things which are therein, that there should be time no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished. As he hath declared to his servants the prophets, both of these messages give you the same thing. What's going to happen at the end of the tribulation period? What's going to happen at the end? What does it mean when he says there should be time no longer? Does it mean that time itself stops? No. It doesn't mean that time stops. It should be taken in, this, in, this, in the same way that we say, time's up. Time's up. There's no more delay. It's, it may also be the final response that God gives to the saints. Remember the prayers of the saints that were under the altar asking for God's justice upon the earth? It may be a response from God saying, that's it, time's up. I'm not going to delay anymore. It's finished. 
Now, the scripture says here that when the seventh trumpet is blown, that the mystery of God should be finished as he has declared to his servants the prophets. When the seventh trumpet is blown, mind you, we're in the sixth trumpet at the moment. When the seventh trumpet is blown, time's up for the world. And Christ's kingdom is going to be ushered in. That's the promise. No more delay. Christ shall return and defeat the armies of the world. Now, Revelation 10, 7 says, But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished, as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. Let's have a look at, briefly, what happens when the seventh trumpet is blown. Go forward to Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. Okay, And the seventh angel sounded, that's the trumpet, and there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders which sat, up, sat before God on their seats fell upon their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. And the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come. And the time of the dead, and the, and the time of the dead that they should be judged and that thou should givest reward unto thy servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and to them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldest destroy them which destroy the earth. And look at verse 19. And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament, and there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. So let's, let's summarise it for you. When the seventh trumpet's blown, there are great voices in heaven which proclaim the kingdoms of this world and now Jesus' kingdoms. And he's going to reign forever and ever. And they say that his wrath has come. And the time, of, and the time that the dead should be, should be judged has, has arrived. And it says the temple of God is opened in heaven, so it's visible. And the temple of the ark is seen and there are lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. Now, turn with me to the seventh vial, chapter 16, verse 17. I want to compare. Now, remember the vials happen after the, the trumpets, correct? Okay, now we've read the seventh trumpet, now we're going to read the seventh vial. And the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air. And there came a great voice out of the, where? The temple of heaven from the throne saying, it is done. And there were voices, that's familiar, and thunderings, that's familiar again, and lightnings, and that's familiar too. And there was a great earthquake also mentioned such as was not since men were upon the earth so mighty an earthquake and so great 
And the great city was divided into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. Hmm, sounds like Christ has returned. And the great Babylon came into remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of her wrath. And every island fled away and the mountains were not found. And there fell upon men a great hail. That's also mentioned in uh, the seventh trumpet too. Out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent, and men blasphemed God because, the plague, or because of the plague of the hail, for the plague thereof was exceeding great. Now, I'm going to tell you what I believe about these two, these two events. I believe that the seventh seal, the seventh trumpet, and the vial all indicate the ushering in of Christ's kingdom. I think they're all indications that, you know, seven... Bang, it's finished, done. Christ is coming back. There's the war and, he, and, he's, and he's now in charge of the whole, the whole thing. I see all the similarities between those three events pointing to the same thing. Jesus, God says there's going to be no time longer. When the seventh trumpet's blown, that's it. That's the final trumpet. And I think that, or I believe that there is there's a the reason for the interlude. Do you remember between the sixth seal and the seventh seal? There's a break. And God begins to talk about the 144,000 other things. And then we find again, between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet, another break. And God begins to introduce all these other things. God introduces before the seventh seal each time an interesting... Uh, bit of information that concerns particular peoples and things that carries through again through that seven or three last three and a half year period the main focus of those extra things that we find the interludes between the, the, the seals the trumpets is things like Israel the 144,000 the two witnesses the beast the false prophet the ungodly false religious system and Satan and his ungodly kingdom called Babylon God deals with those specifically I'll endeavour to give you some sort of graphical representation of this in the next few weeks so you can actually see it okay now let's go let's go back to our, our passage in verse in verse 7 Revelation 10.7, it says, But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished, as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. What mystery is going to be finished? Who likes a good mystery? <laughs> I knew I would put up his hand. But what mystery are we talking about here? Turn to Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. We're going to look at the mystery that will finally be revealed to the world and will finally have its consummation. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24 to 27. This is Paul speaking to the Colossians and he says... Who now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. 
whereof I am made a minister, according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you, to fulfill the word of God. Verse 26, even the mystery which has been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. This was not revealed to previous generations. And you know what's, what's beautiful? Paul's saying... You know, I've, got, I've been given a very special job to do by God, okay? And it's to suffer for your sakes, to make sure that you understand what God has done for you. And who is he speaking to, the Jews or the Gentiles? Probably both, but primarily the Gentiles. Hands up, who's a Gentile here? We have a few Jews among us. <laughs> The mystery is that God has included the Gentiles in the promises and that Christ is in the church. Christ, which wasn't understood by, by the Old Testament saints, it was not understood that when the Messiah came that he would dwell in the hearts of those people that he, that he saved and that he would bring together all things under himself. Jews and Gentiles together in one body under him. And this amazing uh, thing is called the church. What does a church mean? We had a bit of a chat about it before, the, uh, before communion time. The church is the body of Christ. Church is every believer that has been indwelt by God himself, the Holy Spirit. Not everyone is... You know when people say, oh, everyone's a child of God? Everyone's not a child of God. Only the ones that have been adopted into God's family are the children of God, those who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Because it's only those who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit that the Spirit then makes them say, Abba, Father. But the amazing thing of the mystery that we find here is that there's going to be a marriage there's a wedding associated. And that all those who are in Christ, in this thing we call the church, will be married to him forever. And the amazing thing is, it gets more mysterious and more mysterious every time, that God has in one man called Jesus Christ married together the divine, which is God, and man in one person. Jesus is now the same God and man. So he is the one that joins mankind to God perfectly in a marriage that can never be broken, in a vow or a promise that will never be forsaken. Isn't that an amazing thing? When you think about that mystery, when you think about the fact that, that Christ will return here and that he will set up his kingdom and that he will have his bride who has been made clean and, clean and white by his own blood and that he has remained a man in heaven. Because the Bible says that in heaven he is still a man. 
He has retained full manhood, even to the point where he has the holes in his hand and his feet and his side. You know something? He didn't have to. He did not have to keep those wounds. But he chose to. He chose to keep his humanity and to be wedded forever, God to man. That's amazing. And we have the privilege, we have the blessing as Gentiles to be now included in that. Because Gentiles used to be foreigners and aliens to God's purposes and God's, God's promises. They had to, to, to receive God's promises, what did they have to do? They had to become Jews. They had to become a Jew in order to receive those promises and then go through all the stuff that the Jews do. But now we find through Jesus that even the Gentiles have been taken in. Ephesians covers the same thing. In Ephesians, you have to turn there. It says, How that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery. This is the same Paul speaking. As I wrote afore in a few words, whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body, and partakers of his promise in Christ, his promise in Christ by the gospel. That's the mystery. We've all been included. Whoever puts their faith now in Jesus is saved and included into his body by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's amazing to think that at one stage the Gentiles had no blessings from that point of view. It's amazing now that God has included us because we're all his enemies. It's an amazing thing when you think about it. The more you think about it, the more amazing it becomes that God has wedded himself to humanity in a way that he hasn't done with anything else. Not his angels, not creation, not animals, anything else. He has decided to marry himself in bodily form to man. And that's only because Jesus Christ was the Son of God and became a man and remained a man. Let's finish with verses 8 to 11. And the voice which I heard from heaven spake unto me again and said, Go and take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel which standeth upon the sea and upon the earth. And I went unto the angel and said unto him, Give me the little book. And he said unto me, Take it and eat it up and it shall make thy belly bitter but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up, and it was in my mouth sweet as honey, and as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. And he said unto me, Thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Talk about Reader's Digest. John is asked to eat this little book that's in the hand of this angel. And lucky it was a little book. Not a big one. Might have been difficult to, to consume. The picture we're getting here, though, is that John has been asked to consume this thing into himself, 
to take it within himself. And it's a bit like uh, Jesus. When Jesus was tempted by Satan and Satan says, you know, turn these stones into bread if you're the son of God. And Jesus says, you know, uh, uh. man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. His word is, is something we consume and take within ourselves. And John is doing a similar thing. The problem is, though, that when he first eats it, it's sweet. But then when it reaches his stomach, by the time he ingests it and digests it, he has some heartburn there. Because the message isn't exactly the nicest message. It's a, a bitter, sweet message. Sorry to use all these puns and things, but I think I'm getting through. It's a bittersweet message. A lot of God's messages are like that, aren't they? The gospel is even a bittersweet message. It's bitter to have to be told that you're a sinner, that you're proud, you've turned your back against God, and that you're on your way to hell. The sweet part of the message is that if you repent and put your faith in Jesus to save you, you will be saved. That's a bitter and a sweet message. I'm going to use another pun. It's like taking a bit, uh, uh, what's the word? A pill, a bitter pill. The message, when John first gets it, is beautiful to him. Because the message is that God is going to finally do what he's promised from times past. That Jesus will come and return to the earth. He'll take over the kings of the world, kingdoms of the world, and then usher in a thousand year millennium of peace. God's going to finally be in control of this world. He's in control now, but he is going to be visibly in control. He's going to finally finish. That's the good part. The bad part is that in the meantime, the devil is going to have his way with man. At the beast, will deceive millions and possibly billions of people. They will receive his mark and they will all go to hell. That's a bitter thing to swallow. That's a hard thing to take. When you look at the picture first up, you think, this is fantastic. And when you start thinking about the consequences of the picture, when you start looking at the, the detail and you see the billions of people that will die, when you see the deception, when you see all the bad things that are going to happen, that's bitter. Unfortunately, John's been given a message that he has to share with the world and he doesn't have a choice. And it's exactly the same message that Ezekiel was given. I'm not going to read that passage. If you want to write, that, write it down for yourself, it's Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 7 to chapter 3, verse 4. Ezekiel was given a very similar thing to do he was told to eat a scroll by an angel and he said you're going to you're going to give this message to this obstinate this rebellious people called israel and it's going to be sweet in your mouth because you're going to see that god's going to achieve his purposes but it's going to be bitter for you because you're going to have to share this this terrible news with these people and they are probably going to not not accept it and it's going to be terrible in its outcome Exactly the same thing happens to Ezekiel. 
We've been called to give a message. When a person has been saved, when you have been called, when you have accepted the calling and have put your faith in Jesus, when you are saved and your, your eternal security is secure, assured and... What's the word I'm looking for? <laughs> Shouldn't have been the end. See, that's a good one. Thank you. When you have all that, when you have your eternal destiny secure, you need to understand that you have a message that you carry around, you and I carry around with us every day to all those people who have no security, who have nothing. Their only security is an eternity in hell. And it's a difficult sometimes to share that message, isn't it? It's not the easiest message to give. It's beautiful to us, sweet to us, isn't it? Because we've accepted the message. To us it's beautiful. But to them, they need to hear it. And it may be bitter in our stomachs sometimes, but we need to understand that we have a responsibility, just as Ezekiel did and Daniel and John, we have a responsibility to share this message we carry around with us in jars of clay. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15, it says, For we are unto God a sweet savour of Christ, in them that are saved and in them that perish, to the one we are the savour of death unto death, and to the other the savour of life unto life. And who was sufficient for all these things? To some, the message we give is death. They think that the life they have is true life. They think that what we're offering them is not life at all. The message we're giving them is not life because they want to live their life now. And they think the only way to actually live their life is to do it their own way. The gospel we carry around with us is a bitter and a sweet one. And it includes the revelation of Jesus Christ, which is the book of Revelation. John was faithful to eat the book and carry the message. We have to do the same. God calls us to consume his word, to live off it, to feed on it, that our, our minds might be changed and transformed to think the way Jesus thought. That's the goal, to think the way Jesus thought and thinks today. And the only way for that to happen is apart from getting together and fellowshipping with each other so we can edify each other and, and spur each other on is to hear a message and more importantly read that book on a regular basis. If you don't eat on a daily basis, how, how do you get by? You don't. Don't eat for a few days and see how you feel. Why do we not feed on God's word why do we delay eating properly when God told us we have to do that to live God is in control God is telling us what's going to happen in the future step by step by step but we have to understand this thing should not just make us happy this thing shouldn't, shouldn't just excite us about hearing how the end of the world is going to be. This thing should motivate us to share this thing we've got, we've got called the gospel with other people. It should motivate us to understand that time is short. 
We need to get out there and to share this gospel. Be witnesses of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your precious word. We thank you that you have saved us with a wonderful salvation that we we could never earn and that we never deserved. Lord, we thank you for the sacrifice of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us and has now called us to take up our cross and follow him. Lord, I pray that we are all here doing that. I pray that if there is any here who doesn't know you personally, who has not put their faith in you and repented of their sin and turned to you for salvation, I pray that person now would be looking at their heart, would be examining themselves, and that your spirit might be working on them so that they might understand what it means to be saved and to know you as Lord and Saviour. Lord, I pray that if there is any here, that they might come and speak to someone who does have that assurance. We thank you once again for this precious time that this church has been able to get together and glorify your name and learn from you. Lord, you deserve all the glory for who you are and for what you've done. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.